This is Our American Stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to... um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair, which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "He said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway, and... Um, 
kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then uh, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no, to tell, <laughs> tell, us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the, the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, b- before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with, but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know. And spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and um, (sighs) embarrassing time. You know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright. And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, Upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first? And also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't, we just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to, you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just, just because they, he was their brother, and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to 
a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that yeah. you get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through, and I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if, you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and were sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, 
you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility, I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes, and and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional, and, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more, you know, it's just, we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. This is Our American Stories, and what you're about to hear, well, it might be disturbing to those of you listening who are sensitive to stories about animal abuse. But in this dark corner of American history, our producer Jesse Edwards brings us the story of an elephant who was killed by an angry mob. Marching into a big top to the sound of a drunken four-piece band, the elephants in Charlie Sparks' traveling circus did their best to entertain the audience on that cold afternoon of February 1916. They sat on their haunches, stood on their heads, and performed an elephant train as they placed their forelegs on each other's backs and trumpeted around the ring. In short, they performed every trick they had known, but they could not make up for the absence of the real star of the show, a five-ton Asian elephant named Mary. 
Mary's talents included picking out 25 tunes on musical horns, which she tooted out with her trunk. She was also the champion pitcher on the circus's baseball team. But on that tragic day, she had been stripped of her red and gold saddle and dress of artificial blue feathers and stood tethered in disgrace outside the tent. Waiting there, in the drizzling rain, it was said that she trembled fearfully, as if aware of the awful fate about to befall her. And well she might have done, for murderous Mary, as she became known, had not only killed a man, but had made the mistake of doing so near Irwin, Tennessee. This newly booming American railroad town had its own post office, theater, and courthouse. It also had a jail, but the sheriff's authority counted for little in a part of the world where mob rule still prevailed. Her fate was sealed the day before the hanging, when Charlie Sparks' circus train arrived in the small town of Kingsport, about 40 miles from Irwin. As always, it advertised its presence with a parade along the main street, during which Mary was ridden by 38-year-old Walter Eldridge, nicknamed Red because of his red, rusty-colored hair. He was a drifter who had been with the circus only one day. He had no experience of handling elephants, but the only qualification required was the ability to wield an elephant stick, a rod with a sharp spear at one end. While the elephant stick usually kept Mary in line, she was suffering from a painfully abscessed tooth that day. When she stopped during the parade to nibble on a piece of discarded watermelon rind, Red Eldridge jabbed her to keep her moving and inadvertently hit the tender spot. Her reaction was swift and deadly. Reaching up with her trunk, she slammed him to the ground and then stepped on his head. Blood and brains and stuff just squirted all over the street, recalled one witness. As the terrified spectators screamed and fled, a local blacksmith shot Mary with a pistol, unloading five rounds of ammunition into her thick hide to little effect. She stood still, suddenly calm again and seemingly oblivious to both the bullets and the commotion as the townsfolk encircled her with chants of kill the elephant, kill the elephant. Fearing that his dates in other towns would be canceled if they heard that his circus was home to a homicidal pachyderm, Charlie Sparks had no choice but to give in to these demands for vengeance. The only question was how Mary would meet her end. Bullets had already proved ineffective, and neither was poison likely to work. Some people advocated crushing Mary slowly between two opposing railway engines. Others called for her head to be tied to one locomotive and her legs to another so that she would be dismembered alive as they set off in opposite directions. Another option was electrocution. There was a horrific precedent for this thanks to Thomas Edison, inventor of the first commercially viable electric light bulb. At a time when America was choosing which of the two main forms of electricity to adopt, direct current or alternating current, he had patents for many devices using the former and stood to profit hugely if it was chosen over its rival. Claiming that DC was the safer of the two, Edison spread false stories about fatal accidents supposedly involving AC. He also staged various demonstrations in which animals were publicly electrocuted with AC, the most spectacular of which came about in 1903 when a new amusement park opened in New York's Coney Island. One of the attractions was an elephant named Topsy, but it was claimed that she had become violent and uncooperative and the owners sought publicity for their new venture by executing her with Edison's help. A huge crowd saw Topsy place her feet obediently into specially designed wooden sandals lined with copper wiring and linked to an AC power supply. When the switch was thrown, smoke billowed up from her feet, and within a few minutes, it was all over. One newspaper reported the public's morbid delight in watching her demise, 
even though it caused an unpleasant smell to mingle with the scent of roasted peanuts sold at two cents a bag. But her death proved in vain, because Edison's plot failed, and America eventually went with AC as its standard electricity current. This had reached rural Tennessee by 1916, but not with sufficient power to kill an elephant. So, Charlie Sparks came up with the equally sensational idea of hanging Mary. The next day, the circus visited Irwin, Tennessee, which had a 100-ton crane used to lift railway carriages on and off the tracks. This was strong enough to support an elephant, and the matinee-goers, disappointed by not seeing Mary in the ring that afternoon, were relieved by the news that they could see her being hanged shortly afterwards at no additional charge. As she was led away to the railway yard, the other four elephants followed Mary, each entwining their trunk in the tail of the animal in front, just as they had done in countless parades. Charlie Sparks hoped that the presence of the other elephants would keep Mary complacent, but as a chain was placed around her neck at the gallows, they trumpeted mournfully to her. And he feared that she might try to run away. To stop this from happening, one of her legs was tethered to a rail, but nobody thought to release it as the crane whirred into action and she was hoisted into the air. There was an awful cracking noise. The sound of her bones and ligaments snapping under the strain. She had been raised no more than five feet when the chain around her neck broke, dropping her to the ground and breaking her hip. Children in the crowd panicked and ran for cover, but Mary simply sat dazed and in terrible pain. Meanwhile, one of the circus hands ran up her back, as if climbing a hill rather than a living creature, and attached a stronger chain. The winch was powered up again, and this time Mary was raised high into the air, her thick legs thrashing and agonized shrieks and grunts audible, even over the laughter and cheers of those watching below. Finally, she fell silent and hung there for a half hour before a local vet declared her dead. Her gruesome end is recorded in a photograph so horrifically surreal that some have suggested it must be a fake. But, all too sadly, its authenticity has been confirmed by other photographs taken at the time. That night, the circus went ahead as usual. But after the show, one of the remaining elephants broke away from the herd and began running towards the railway yard. Since wild elephants are thought to return to the bones of fallen family members for many years, he perhaps went in search for Mary. But he was quickly recaptured and returned to the life of captive misery from which he had escaped. Knowing that Mary no longer had to endure this cruel and unnatural existence is perhaps the only consolation to be drawn from this awful tale. Today... She still lies buried in a huge grave which was dug for her using a steam shovel. Some said the hole was as big as a barn, but no one knows exactly where it is, or seems much inclined to find it. There remains no monument to Mary the Elephant in Irwin, Tennessee, the town which hanged an elephant and apparently remains ashamed of having done so to this very day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And we bring you every kind of story here on Our American Stories. Murderous Marys. Never heard it. It makes an amazing movie, I think. Very cinematic. Big themes. 
And to hear more of our material, go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear stories about every walk of life from American history to the arts to sports and to stories like these, stories you'd never heard of and stories that will surely move you. Sometimes they'll make you laugh. Sometimes we'll make you cry. Sometimes we'll just get you sick to your stomach and just wonder, wow, how could man be so cruel? And we were moved in just that way by Jesse's piece. More after these messages. This is our American stories. No, that's not the sound of our editing bay before we get to work. Though I wish it was. Uh, it's just a, a dad goofing off with his kids, making them laugh, tickling them, teasing them, making facial gestures. No better sound in the world than a human being laughing, young or old. Somehow as we get older, we, we don't laugh as much. Shame on us. I think that's why we have kids. And then they grow up, and we want to pull our hair out. And... We love doing stories out of the personal journal, the part of the Wall Street Journal that we know America loves, and the more Americans can get in touch with the personal part of the Wall Street Journal, called the personal journal, the better it's in there in the fourth section of the paper. I start my day every day going there first to get my sensibilities tickled. And one story in particular caught our attention a while back, and it was why are some people more ticklish than others? That was really the title. And I'm a curious guy, and it has a picture of a mom, by the way, tickling her child, and it's a beautiful picture. And I want to lead with the read of the, of the piece. It starts off like this. Wiggly fingers approaching the armpits can elicit giggles from some people. For others, even a feather caressing the toes will bring about no response. Scientists are perplexed by the variability and the origin of the tickle response. And that's why we brought Heidi Mitchell on to join us. Heidi, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. So how, but before I even start, where do you get this story? I mean, how does this story stumble upon you? <laughs> well, we have this column every other Tuesday in the personal journal section, and they are, they are quirky. I'll give you that. Um, they, this one came from the editor of the section who happens to have, mm, I think, a three-year-old. And so she was, it was actually her idea. She was wondering, how come he's so ticklish and I'm not ticklish at all? So we're all like around, hovering around 40 and did a little census and none of us are ticklish anymore. So we wanted to know why the heck not. Wait a second. Wait not? a second. You work with a bunch of people who aren't ticklish anymore. What's wrong with you all? <laughs> well, you know, we took very scientifically a feather around and tickled people and they didn't, they didn't giggle. <laughs> they giggled. You know, we giggle because we think it's fun and funny. Right. But um, but that, that that response of the actual tickle feeling, 
it just isn't, it isn't there anymore. And so tell me this. Pretty much and, nobody. No, and, and nobody. Tell me, and by the way, this is the burning question column, by the way, in the personal journal. And this obviously was the burning question you, you had to solve. interesting people at the Wall Street Journal that happened to not be ticklish, along with the rest of the world. Wow. So, so let's, let's work this down now. So you went and you talked to neuroscientists and one David J. Linden, and he was at John Hopkins. I mean, pretty fancy name, pretty fancy uh, hospital. What, what did, what did, what did he teach you? Well, I love this guy because he spends all day studying um, mice in the lab. Um, and he happens to be, so he's a neuroscientist and he works on um, various responses in the brain, but he doesn't specifically work on touch. He's just a fanboy is what he calls himself. So he is a fanatic about our sense of touch and thinks that it involves many, many different senses. So he went around and spoke to all of these experts in the field and wrote this book the science t- called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And he's fascinated and, with the subject, and he's fascinating to talk to, and he has so many thoughts, and he's a fantastic interview, which is kind of a rare find. <laughs> yep. um, so, yeah, so he was our guy, and he gave, you know, we like to call it an informed opinion because uh, a lot of times science isn't totally behind uh, a lot of the subjects that we cover like tickling not a ton of research on it well tell me this then he you know and i'm going to read because i love reading from writers work um and then you just advance the ball at this point early in the article you write some scientists have argued that being ticklish is a defensive reflex against attack but dr linden finds that explanation wanting why is that so if you think about it kind of seems like that's a good explanation, right? Like the places where you're super ticklish, you know, around your neck, where you have a major gland, where you have major uh, vein around under your armpit. So that works. But then when you think about like your bottoms of your feet, well, that's not going to kill you in battle, right? Right. If you're if you're stabbed in the foot or something like that. So that sort of that's why Dr. Lennon believes that this isn't really a fully thought through idea. So he doesn't think that it's that that's why we've evolved. All these things are evolutionarily based. I mean, I'm a firm believer in trying to understand why we do what we do based on evolutionary. Um, devices. So so yeah. So we just he doesn't believe, and I agree with him. He doesn't believe that that. It's a reflex against attack. doesn't seem to carry through. So then he goes on, and I'll read again. He compares being ticklish to having an itch, which most experts believe evolved as a protective measure against infestation by insects or worms. Talk about that. Kind of gross, but yep. kind of makes sense. Because when you're, in your itching, um, when you have an itch, um, like a tickle, it's a specific kind of feeling that requires an immediate response. So um, unlike pain, which can be chronic or you can, it can linger and you cannot deal with it, like a headache or a throbbing or um, something even that's acute, but passing um, an, an itch, like a tickle, it, it provokes a very immediate response. So you might think that the, the, the tickle response is like, oh, there's like a worm crawling on me. I'm living in the cave. I'm thinking of cavemen. Right. And I'm living in a cave and there's like a bug or something. And so it's ticklish. And so I go, ah, and I, and I immediately push it away. Right. Um, but honestly, and that seems to be a pretty good explanation because bugs tend to be tickly on us. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been scientifically proven. Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you wrote here still, the neuroscientist says, 
We honestly don't know why humans are ticklish. By the way, I love it when a scientist can have some theories, but then just finally admit, look, we study this eight different ways. I'll tell you something else that was interesting, though. He says there is no indication being ticklish is inherited. He has seen tickling across every culture. So imagine this. He's studying tickling across cultures and says the behavior is often informed by social norms, taboos, and the setting in which it takes place, which, by the way, would be my theory. He says then, if someone is really angry, you can't tickle them. Um, talk about that, the setting. So I think that the, the non-inheriting part of it is, is so fascinating, right? Because you often hear people say, oh, I'm ticklish because my dad is so ticklish, you know, and it's just never, there's no link proven. There's no, he said, I wish I could just, you know, take the ticklish part of your feet and, and bisect it, dissect it. And I'd find like a whole bunch of neurons affiliated with the tickle response that is just not there. They have, just doesn't exist. And even though, um, and actually he's seen ticklish across, being ticklish across um, every single culture, um, yes, and also in, in lemurs. He said he's seen videos of lemurs that seem to have a human-like response to being tickled. Um, and you've seen it with, like, your dog, your cat. I mean, they seem to, like, enjoy it. I don't know if it's the same quite response, similar response, but not quite the same. But um, but what is so important is the situation. So tickling, unlike many other of our responses, is so situational. So if you're if you're if you're you're in love with somebody and you're having a, a moment and you're looking into each other's eyes and he like caresses your face, you know, you might tickle and giggle and it feels good. If you're in the middle of a heated argument and he does the exact same thing, you're it's, you're not gonna feel that same Oh yeah, I, I've like, tried that. I, I, I've tried that one. That doesn't work. That doesn't. My wife doesn't let me do that. That that doesn't get me anywhere. Let me share this with you. Not going to break the argument. That's for sure. Not breaking the argument. Maybe breaking a bone in my body. Actually, I got to be careful when I when I get too clever. Elbow. Exactly. So most people you wrote here also aren't able to tickle themselves. And here's where the doctor says something interesting. When you go to tickle yourself, your brain is sending a message to the tickling hand and a copy is going to the cerebellum, which sends inhibitory signals to dampen the sensation. We know this because people who have damage to their cerebellum are able to tickle themselves, says Dr. Linden. Now, this is really fascinating. I've never actually tried to tickle myself. I went ahead and actually did try, and I couldn't. And I am still very ticklish. We'll get to that in a second. Talk about why, as people get older, they, are lo- they tend to lose the ticklish sensation they once had. Well, first of all, the, the, the not being able to tickle yourself thing is, so interesting because basically what's happening is, and this is again evolutionary, so you're walking down the street and your clothes are kind of rubbing against you and they're kind of tickly if you were to think about it, Mm -hmm. but you don't think about it because you have to think about, well, am I being attacked? What food do I want to eat? Who do I want to mate with? So our bodies, our minds have evolved to take that signal of um, your clothes rubbing against your body, just as an example, or your hand moving toward your wrist to caress it. And damp sends uh, that copies that message and sends it to your cerebellum. It says, just don't think too much about that. It's not important. Focus right. on, you know, mating and finding food and shelter. Right. Um, so that's why you can't really tickle yourself. Um, as far as getting older, um, you know, it's not totally proven, but the feeling, the thought is that as starting at age 20, you start to lose a little bit of your nerve endings on your skin as you get older. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's very small, like 1% a year. Right. So that 
old people maybe don't have any feeling of, of any sensation on the bottoms of their feet, which is one, one reason why maybe they fall more often. Um, it's just one of many, many reasons. But there's other responses that we, we, the nerve endings are no longer quite attuned to, like heat and cold and pressure and, and, and pain. And so, um, so as we get older, yes, we become less ticklish. It's just one of the many senses. Uh, that we that we that diminish as we get older. So I guess if you live to a hundred, like we're all gonna live to hundred, we'll, we won't be hot, we won't be cold, awesome. and we won't um, be ticklish. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good things come of this. Heidi. Won't feel pain, maybe. <laughs> some good things come of it. <laughs> Heidi, we are we are we love this. Uh, email us when you have stories like this. Heidi Mitchell, tickling the Wall Street Journal. Go figure. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to Our American Stories, and this is Lee Habib. We take you now to a place of myth, a place of legend. The state, Mississippi, the place, the crossroads. Our American Stories executive producer Jesse Edwards takes us on a quest to find the place where, according to legend, Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. The Crossroads. Many of us know the story of a young black man who went down to the crossroads at midnight looking to make a deal with the devil so he could play the blues guitar. Legend has it that it all went down at the intersection of old U.S. Highway 61 and 49 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. It's a busy intersection with some amazing food at Abe's Barbecue right there on the corner. If you're ever there, you have to try some tamales and the Big A barbecue pork sandwich. It's to die for. And you can see the Crossroads Monument right out of the window. Three big blue guitars on a pole with a sign underneath that say, The Crossroads. I'm at the crossroads in Clarksdale. So you hear a lot of traffic right under the big guitar signs. Could this be the real crossroads? If you ask that question around here, you'll get a lot of different answers. Some people insist it's in Clarksdale. Others say it's down the road closer to the Mississippi River in Rosedale at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1. I'm here at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1 in Rosedale, Mississippi. There's a sign that reads, Rosedale was immortalized in Robert Johnson's 1937 recording, Traveling Riverside Blues. In 1968, Eric Clapton's group Cream incorporated the verse going down to Rosedale in their version of Johnson's Crossroad Blues. Although Johnson's original 1936 version of this song did not mention Rosedale, the town has since been associated of a blues man selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads. (laughs) 
Some people, especially the old timers, say their original crossroads is just south of a historic plantation a few miles east of Cleveland, Mississippi. The Dockery Plantation. You better hush, 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 hush. Somebody's calling my name. I'm here at the Dockery Plantation, established by Will Dockery in 1895 and operated from 1937 to 1982 by Joe Rice Dockery. It included a post office, a commissary, and a cotton gin. The plantation once employed Charlie Patton, legendary blues musician who inspired such greats as Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, B.B. King, and Elvis Presley. There's a sign here that asks, is this the birthplace of the blues? It reads, the precise origins of the blues are lost to time, but one of the primal centers for the music in Mississippi was Dockery Farms. For nearly three decades, the plantation was the home of Charlie Patton, the most important Delta blues musician. Patton himself learned from fellow Dockery resident Henry Sloan and influenced many other musicians who came here, including Howlin' Wolf, Willie Brown, Tommy Johnson, and Robert Pop Staples. I had a chance to meet up with the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation, William Lester. This is the, uh, the birthplace of the blues? Well, you know, B.B. King came here in 1973 and stood in front of the seed house and said if you had to pick one spot, he said, you might as well say it all started right here. And what I think he meant was, uh, obviously he's dead and we can't ask him anymore, but what I think he meant was uh, that probably no one knows where the first blues note was written or the first blues song, or the first blues lick. But so much of the education of the blues went on here at Dockery because Charlie Patton came here as a child. His mother and father, Annie and Bill Patton, brought him here because Mr. Dockery paid the highest wages in the Delta. He paid 50 cents a day uh, when everybody else was paying 40 cents a day. That doesn't sound much to us, but that meant on Friday, Saturday, you got paid. You got an extra day's pay. Here's B.B. King who introduces us to the music of Charlie Patton. In my day, we learned the blues songs from the records and the radio. But back then, blues musicians learned from each other. Willie Brown played here, Sunhouse played here, and here at Dockers, another blues singer was working the fields by day and playing his music by night. He was Charlie Patton, called the father of the Delta Blues. You, you, you had it on the wall. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through Dockery Plantation, and they all came to hear Charlie Patton play the guitar. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester, the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from uh, Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan 
a few years later got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that in, uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive, and they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and to see what was new. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. You're listening to Jesse Edwards and his quest to find the legendary crossroads in the Mississippi Delta. When we come back, we'll hear more about Dockery Plantation and how it became the center of the universe for bluesmen back in the day. This is Lee Habib. Welcome back to Our American Stories. We're following a quest to find the legendary crossroads in the Mississippi Delta with our producer, Jesse Edwards. We now go back to our report with B.B. King, who introduces us to Charlie Patton from Dockery Plantation. In my day, we learned the blues songs from the records and the radio. But back then, blues musicians learned from each other. Willie Brown played here, Sunhouse played here, and here at Dockery's another blues singer was working the fields by day and playing his music by night. He was Charlie Patton, called the father of the Delta Blues. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through Dockery Plantation, and they all came to hear Charlie Patton play the guitar. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester, the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from uh, Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that in, uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive, and they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and to see what was new. Uh, Willie Brown played here with Charlie a lot. He was his running buddy, and Eric Clapton says there are things that Willie Brown can do that no human can do now unless they could see Willie live do it. So, you know, it must be pretty difficult what Willie did. And so then Willie went on to play with Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson obviously got influenced by Charlie through Willie because they played together. Uh, uh, Willie played with Charlie first for a number of years, and then they had a falling out over a woman, I'm told, and then he went to be with uh, Robert because Robert was the next big up-and-coming star, and so he wanted, he was a backup guitarist. Two important characters there in the legend of the Crossroads story, Willie Brown and Robert Johnson. In Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues, you can hear Robert Johnson call out to Willie Brown in the last verse. You can run, you can run. Tell my friend for Willie Brown. You can run, 
1986, Hollywood made a movie about the legend of the crossroads. Ralph Macchio plays a kid trying to learn a lost song of Robert Johnson's. He breaks Willie Brown out of a prison and goes to Mississippi, where Willie tries to get his soul back from a deal he made at the devil at the crossroads, just like Robert Johnson did. Here's a clip from the Crossroads movie where Willie Brown is trying to get Lightning Boy to make the guitar sound just like the train. Hey, look at the train over there. that lost song if you can't make the train talk. The way you playing is gonna take you 10 years. Well, then maybe I'll just have to do what you did, Willie. I'll go down to the crossroads and I'll strike up a deal with the devil and that'll take care of the whole thing. Don't you ever say that again. So did Robert Johnson, the man who, according to legend, sold his soul to the devil, come down to old Dockery Farms? Robert Johnson came here. Sunhouse came here. They actually all came here because it was... The drawing point was all these people that couldn't go anywhere. We'll get back to our search for the real crossroads in just a minute. But it's important to know why this place was so important to blues musicians back in the day, just as it is to this day. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester. What they would do is play for free, any of them, here at the commissary. There were no Jew joints in the Delta at the turn of the century, you know that. I mean, there were some in New Orleans, some in Memphis, but the Delta was cut and dry, life and death. You know, there was just nothing like that here. And so, these bluesmen weren't stupid. What they did was, they paid these people at this house, and they called it a frolicking house. They paid them to move all the furniture out of the house on Saturday afternoon. The bluesmen had bought giant mirrors for each wall. Remember, no indoor potties, no electricity, no radios, no fans, no air condition, no nothing. Had absolutely nothing. So, these giant mirrors would be on every wall in this house even though it was a small house. If there were two rooms, there'd be eight mirrors. They would put a coal oil lantern in front of each mirror at dark and raise the windows. That house would look like it's on fire compared to all the rest of them, which were pitch black dark. People couldn't even afford kerosene back then. And so, the bluesmen would play for free on the commissary front porch, walk across the one-lane bridge. That's the perfect setup, because they'd have takers right here. They wouldn't let you across the bridge unless you paid 25 cents to come to the frolicking house. So, a thousand grown men at 25 cents. You know, you just came from Oxford, right? I graduated from Ole Miss twice <laughs> over there. Some people say that means I can't read and write, but I can count. And that's 250 bucks a night. And a brand new car in 1915 didn't cost but $210. So Charlie Patton was making enough money to buy a brand new car every Saturday night when he played, if he played at a big place like this. Now. The reason I know that, again, is because Tom Cannon told me one time Uncle Charlie came home in 1926, Mr. Bill, and he was wearing white man Sunday school clothes, and he was driving a brand new car. He said the rest of us blacks were barefoot and riding mules. And he said Charlie was a real man. 
And so you see, it's a different attitude and a different uh, type thing they were doing. There was something else that made the Dockery Plantations so popular with blues musicians. Here again is William Lester on the Chicago Railroad Connection. To feed these people, Mr. Will and his hands built a railroad from Dockery, Mississippi, all the way to Boyle through the woods, 12 miles. Because you had to have food. You, you got two or 3,000 hungry people every night. How are you going to feed them? There ain't enough mules and wagons in Mississippi to bring that much food to that many people. And so he built a train, uh, and he uh, uh, would ship out goods on the train and bring in food and other uh, commodities on that train. But the real thing it did was it allowed them bluesmen to come from all over the Delta and ride out here to Dockery. If they didn't have a car, they didn't have to walk or ride a horse. They could ride the train. Train would pull up, let them off to the depot. They'd come down here to play, gather up their couple hundred bucks, which was pretty good, get back on the train and go someplace else. big thing that I think made B.B. King uh, call this the birthplace of the blues, and he calls Charlie Patton uh, the father of the blues. I think the reason he said that is because the education that took place on the commissary front porch could get on the train and be in Chicago in less than uh, 48 hours and play the same music they just heard here and learned here to a wide audience in Chicago. And so that blues left Dockery and went straight to the heart. Of, of, of being the foundation of all the other music that was to come after it. Right straight back and forth. They get uh, worn out in Chicago playing what they were playing. They come back, learn something new, go back up there again. And a good many of them did that. And so I believe that's why, you know, it's called the birthplace of the blues. I know everybody wants to claim they're the birthplace of the blues, but uh, uh, I'll stick with B.B. We've stopped in Clarksdale, Mississippi, Rosedale, Mississippi, and now we're standing at Dockery Plantation between Ruleville and Cleveland, Mississippi on Highway 8. All three places where Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in order to play the blues better than anyone else at the time. But is it in Clarksdale? Is it in Rosedale? Or is it here at Dockery? William Lester tells us that Robert Palmer wrote a book that mentions where he thinks the real crossroads are. I've heard rumors that the crossroads might actually be at Dockery Plantation. Is there any truth to that? Well, if you read Robert Palmer's book, Deep Blues, uh, he tells you the story about, about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. And <clears throat> the story goes um, from him, uh, and he interviewed, like I said, Howlin' Wolf and others that were alive when all this was supposed to have taken place, that he was playing with Charlie Patton and Willie Brown, obviously, remember I told you Willie Brown was probably the best, uh, according to Eric Clapton, best guitarist ever. And those two were playing together. They were 15 years older than Robert, so they obviously had way more experience than he did. Uh, Robert Palmer says they came to where Willie and Charlie were. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. Did we find the original Crossroads that Robert Johnson sang about in Crossroad Blues? When we come back, We'll have more answers and even more questions about this mysterious place in the Mississippi Delta, Dockery Plantation.
Welcome back to Our American Stories. I'm Lee Habib. We return to our search for the legendary Crossroads, where according to legend, Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil in order to play a mean guitar. Here's Jesse Edwards, who takes us to the center of where it all began. We've stopped in Clarksdale, Mississippi, Rosedale, Mississippi, and now we're standing at Dockery Plantation between Ruleville and Cleveland, Mississippi on Highway 8. All three places where Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in order to play the blues better than anyone else at the time. But is it in Clarksdale? Is it in Rosedale? Or is it here at Dockery? William Lester tells us that Robert Palmer wrote a book that mentions where he thinks the real crossroads are. I've heard rumors that the crossroads might actually be at Dockery Plantation. Is there any truth to that? Well... If you read Robert Palmer's book, Deep Blues, uh, he tells you the story about, about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. And <clears throat> the story goes um, from him, uh, and he interviewed, like I said, Howlin' Wolf and others that were alive when all this was supposed to have taken place, that he was playing with Charlie Patton and Willie Brown. And obviously, remember I told you Willie Brown was probably the best, uh, according to Eric Clapton, best guitarist ever. And those two were playing together. They were 15 years older than Robert, so they obviously had way more experience than he did. Uh, Robert Palmer says they came to where Willie and Charlie were. Well, that could have been here just as easy anywhere. On the train, tried to play with them. Uh, he couldn't play as good, and they had probably been drinking a little bit and all that. And so they acted ugly to him and told him he was probably a worthless uh, guitar player. So what did he do? He took his wounds and went down to the depot down here and licked his wounds all night and, 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 and paced back and forth. The train didn't come to the next morning. So supposedly he walked down to the crossroads. These were not here. This wasn't here. But the next crossroads were. And that's where all the old people at Dockery said this story took place. And that he paced around at the, at the crossroads and supposedly could play better the next day. It sounds like we're getting closer. Here's more from Dockery Farms Foundation Executive Director. William Lester. Can you still cross right here? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you just take your time and go across there. Mm-hmm. If you go up here to that big opening, you see to the left up there where that big tree sticking out? Yeah. That's the True Light Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And so I've always thought the song uh, that, that Robert's singing, when he says, when he leaves, there's two lights in behind. I never thought that. The, the depot was right across from the cemetery. I always thought he was saying, and there's true light in behind. You listen to the music and see. Because what would have been, if you were at the back of the train looking out the back as you were leaving Dr. what would you see? True Light Cemetery. Yeah, you know, I, I never could understand what two lights in behind meant, but I understand what true light in behind meant. Because he was worried about dying and worrying about all that stuff, and there was that cemetery right there. The song that he's referring to is Robert Johnson's Love and Vain Blues. Take a listen. When the train had left the station Two lights on behind When the train and left the station was two lights on behind Well the blue light was my blue and the red light was my mind all my love's in vain Hee-hee. This is it. This is the place where it all happened. I tell you what you gotta do. See, you go on over there and start playing a piece. Why? Of course, there's a fella I've got to see. And if you're playing it right, he's gonna come around. 
Yeah, right, Willie. Who is this guy? Don't ask me who you know damn well who. Standing at the corner of Lusk and Walker Road. It's a dirt road just south of the Dockery Plantation. There's a white horse behind a fence. Wondering what I'm doing out here. There's a dead possum in the middle of the crossroads with flies all over it. Is this where Robert Johnson came? Sold his soul to the devil? I don't know. Does William Lester think Dockery Farms is home to the real crossroads? Have we finally narrowed down just exactly where this legendary intersection resides? I've been down there a bunch of times and my hair ain't turned black and I can't play the guitar. <laughs> so I'm not sure that the devil resides down at the crossroads. Not by a long shot. What Howlin' Wolf tells us what really happened. Howlin' Wolf said he got on the train here at Dockery, rode to Hazelhurst, because he had been down there before, got off on the platform. There was a woman he took a fancy to that was 25 years older than him took a fancy to her, married her that same day, and started performing there and, and, and ran into a man named Ike Zimmerman, who was a minstrel player from the East Coast. It was in Hazelhurst. He listened to him play, asked him to play again. He couldn't play the same song twice exactly. So Ike told him, he said, you'll never be worth nothing unless you can play everything perfectly in three minutes, because recordings don't last longer than three minutes. So he said, you got to get tight. You got to tighten up. So. What did Robert do? Robert stayed in Hazelhurst almost a year. So, supposedly it was overnight, but it really took a year of hard work. Got tired of that 25-year-old woman, divorced her, got back on the train, stepped off at Dockery, and he could play everything perfectly in three minutes. His whole repertoire. So the plot thickens. There's another person who backs up this version of the story that has Robert Johnson going to Hazelhurst to learn the blues over a much longer period of time than the legend suggests. Robert Johnson's own grandson, Stephen Johnson, tells the same story that we heard from William Lester. The main story that everybody wants to know and wants to remember him by is that he was at the crossroad and he sold his soul to the devil to learn how to play the way he did. That wasn't the case. From my research and from my study, I found out what made him as good as he became. During the time that he was supposed to have sold his soul to the devil, from 1930 to 1933, around that span of time, he actually left the Delta area where he couldn't hold a tune in the bucket. The guy was saying he just, man, they hate to hear him coming. So he left there and came back to his birthplace, Hazelhurst, Mississippi. During this time, he connected with a blues man named Ike Zimmerman. Ike Zimmerman became Robert Johnson's mentor. For two to three years, he became a student of Ike Zimmerman. During this time, and from talking to Ike Zimmerman's uh, daughters and some of his relatives that are still alive, Robert Johnson lived in Ike's home so much till Ike Zimmerman's daughter thought that was Robert Johnson was their brother. There was a cemetery right across from the home that Ike Zimmerman lived in. They would go in the cemetery and practice at night and different places, the courthouse steps of, of, of Hazelhurst, Mississippi. In other words, they just hung out and played music and practiced. When he went back to the depth after those three years was up, they heard a sound from this man. They heard music being played from Robert Johnson that they never knew existed. So 
They say you have, man, you had to have done something. You must have sold your soul to the devil to be able to play like this. But I attribute it to practice, practice, and more practice. To be honest, I never believed we'd actually find the real crossroads. The truth is, there are many, many creepy old dirt roads and intersections in the state and all over the South that could be the real crossroads. That's assuming you believe that it's possible to summon the devil himself at an intersection to strike up a deal of some sort. The story of the crossroads itself isn't even native to Mississippi. It just happened to stick with Robert Johnson because he became famous. The true origins of crossroads lore can actually be traced all the way back to the 11th century when heathens would bring offerings to Odin at the crossroads. African voodoo has its own version of bringing offerings to various crossroads in order to mysteriously gain new skills. It's even noted in Brazilian mythology. Sometimes, if you want a good story, you just have to suspend disbelief. Lots of towns, lots of songs, lots of women, good times, bad times. The only thing I want anybody to say is, he could really play. He was good. This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, we'll hear a dramatic reading of the original Crossroads story from beginning to end as told by Mississippi bluesman Benny Goodman as we conclude our search for the legendary Crossroads. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. We finish up our story about the crossroads with its conclusion, and we close with a dramatic reading of the story itself. Here's Jesse Edwards. From Clarksdale to Rosedale, the old Dockery Plantation to Hazelhurst, Mississippi, in search for the legendary crossroads where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. We learned from William Lester, executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation, and Robert Johnson's own grandson, Stephen Johnson, that the real crossroads was in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, where Johnson learned to play from a man named Ike Zimmerman over a period of two to three years. Not quite as dramatic as the legend of selling your soul at the crossroads at midnight to the devil himself with the sudden ability to play the guitar like nobody else the next morning. So we've separated the truth from the myth, but not the man from the legend. We learned that sometimes it's better to have a good story to go along with what really happened, because the truth isn't always stranger than fiction. But even so, with that said, I can't help but believe that if there was a real crossroads, it would be here, at Dockery Plantation. Let's hear the story of the crossroads told one more time by a Mississippi blues man named Henry Goodman. In this dramatic reading, Mr. Goodman recounts the story as told to him by his friend Robert Johnson in 1936. Now Robert Johnson been playing down in Yazoo City and over at Beulah, trying to get back up to Helena. Rod left him out on a road next to the levee, walking up on the highway, guitar in his hand propped up on his shoulder. October cool night, 
Full moon filling up the dark sky. Robert Johnson thinking about Sunhouse preaching to him. Put that guitar down, boy. You driving people nuts. Robert Johnson needing, as always, a woman and some whiskey. Big trees all around. Dark and lonesome road. A crazed, poisoned dog howling and moaning in a ditch alongside the road and sending electrified chills up and down Robert Johnson's spine. Coming up on a crossroads just south of Rosedale. Robert Johnson, feeling bad and lonesome, thinks he knows people up the highway in Gunnison. Can get a drink of whiskey and more up there. Man sitting off to the side of the road on a log at the crossroads says, You're late, Robert Johnson. And Robert Johnson drops to his knees and says, Maybe not. The man stands up, tall, barrel-chested, and black as the forever closed eyes of Robert Johnson's stillborn baby, and walks out to the middle of the crossroads where Robert Johnson kneels. He says, stand up, Robert Johnson. You want to throw that guitar over there in that ditch with that hairless dog and go back up to Robinsonville and play the harp with Willie Brown and son because you just another guitar player like all the rest? Or you want to play that guitar like nobody ever played it before? Make a sound like nobody ever heard before? You want to be the king of the Delta Blues and have all the whiskey and women you want? Uh, this sounded too good to be true to Robert Johnson. That's a lot of whiskey and a lot of women, devil man. I know you, Robert Johnson, says the man. Now, Robert Johnson feels the moonlight bearing down on his head and the back of his neck as the moon seems to be growing bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter. He feels it like the heat of the noonday sun bearing down and the howling and the moaning of the dog in the ditch penetrates his soul, coming up through his feet and the tips of his fingers through his legs and arms, settling in that big empty place beneath his breastbone, causing him to shake and shudder like a man with the palsy. And Robert Johnson says, that dog gone mad. The man laughs. That hound belonged to me. He ain't mad. He's got the blues. I got his soul in my hand. The dog lets out a low, long, soulful moan. A howling like never heard before. Rhythmic, syncopated grunts, yelps, and barks. Seizing Robert Johnson like a grand male and causing the strings on his guitar to vibrate, hum and sing with a sound dark and blue. Beautiful, soulful chords and notes possessing Robert Johnson, taking him over, spinning him around, losing him inside of his own self, wasting him, lifting him up into the sky. Yeah, Robert Johnson looks over in the ditch and sees the eyes of the dog reflecting the bright moonlight or more likely, so it seems to Robert Johnson, glowing on their own, a deep violet penetrating glow, and Robert Johnson knows and feels that he is staring into the eyes of a hellhound as his body shudders from head to toe.
The man says, that dog ain't for sale, Robert Johnson, but the sound can be yours. That's the sound of the Delta Blues. And Robert Johnson says, I gots to have that sound, devil man. That sound is mine. Where do I sign? The man says, you ain't got a pencil, Robert Johnson. Your word is good enough. All you gotta do is keep walking north. But you better be prepared. There are consequences to this choice you making, Robert Johnson. Be prepared for what, devil man? You know where you are, Robert Johnson? You are standing in the middle of the crossroads. At midnight, that full moon's gonna be right over your head. You take one more step, you'll be in Rosedale. You take this road to the east, you'll get back over to Highway 61 in Cleveland. Or you can turn around and go back down to Beulah. Or just go to the west and sit up on the levee and watch the river flow. But if you take one more step in the direction you're headed, you're gonna be in Rosedale at midnight under this full October moon. And you are gonna have the blues like never known to this world. My left hand will be forever wrapped around your soul, and your music will possess all who hear it. That's what's gonna happen. That's what you better be prepared for. Your soul will belong to me. This is not just any crossroads, Robert Johnson. I put this X here for a reason. And I've been waiting on you. And Robert Johnson rolls his head around, his eyes upwards in their sockets to stare at the blinding light of the moon, which has now completely filled the pitch-black delta night, piercing his right eye like a bolt of lightning as the midnight hour hits. He looks the big man squarely in the eyes and he says, Step back, devil man. I'm going to Rosedale. I am the blues. The big man moves to one side and says, Go on, Robert Johnson. You the king of the Delta Blues. Go on home to Rosedale. And when you get on up in town, you get you a plate of hot tamales because you're going to be needing something in your stomach where you're headed. And as he stepped forward over the crossroads and into Rosedale, Robert Johnson knew in his heart there would be no turning back. It's a legendary story. And in all probability, it's just a story. But it's a good one at that. But it's not all doom and gloom down there at Dockery Farm. People do come from all over the world looking for the lost crossroads. Let's hear one more time from Dockery Farm Executive Director William Lester, who tells us of another type of pilgrimage that people take every day. Is this big giant mule watering trough. Southern. Uh, it, 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 100 mules could drink it dry in one hour. 25 mules at a time. But the thing that makes it so important is that when they people first moved here uh, and they got baptized in the river, once in a while one of them would get eaten by an alligator or, or get bit by a snake. So I just assume that most people when they get baptized don't want to meet God on the same day that they get baptized. So they moved and started baptizing in this mule water trough because it was clean, clear, pretty water. And so hundreds and hundreds of people were baptized there. I still have numerous people every year in their 80s and 90s come back here to want to see where they were baptized as children. And so it's a pretty neat, and so it's a baptismal font too. 
Even though I came up with more questions than answers on my search for the crossroads, we did find a few things along the way. We found most likely the real birthplace of the blues, where men, women, and children would gather from miles around just to hear men play guitar in the swampy heat of the hot summer night. We found the real history of where Robert Johnson learned to play the guitar. We found a beautiful part of this country that has to be seen and felt to be believed. I've been hearing all my life about the hypnotic effect this place can have on someone, and believe me, it's real. But don't just take my word for it. You need to see it and feel it for yourself. It's a slow and rhythmic pulse. Something that takes over your mind and your soul. Something that gets down deep under your skin and you don't know why, but it's there. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. To learn more about the history of Dockery Plantation from William Lester, you can visit him online at dockeryfarms.org. To hear this story again or to share it with your family and or friends, visit ouramericannetwork.org. Thank you.